6, we're going to talk about new life, living in a Christian community. So verses 1 through 6 of this new life is living in a Christian community. Uh, verses 7 through 10, focusing on new life, is the urgency in living in the Spirit. The urgency of living in the Spirit. And then verses 11 through 18, the cross and a new creation. The cross and a new creation. So let's look at the passage. Chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he reap also. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in be with your spirit brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for the work you did in this church, the work that Paul was able to do throughout the world that still lasts today. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for the words you put upon him that we have with these beautiful letters that still speak to us today. Holy Spirit, just be with us now. Quiet our hearts and our minds and help us to get the message you want spoken here this morning. We love you so much. Amen. 
So looking at this first section, New Life, verses 1 through 6, living in a Christian community. It starts off, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Now, Paul starts off this section of his argument by directly addressing the church. Brothers, or you could say brothers and sisters, he is getting specific in this exhortation in verses 1 through 6. He had just given the church examples last chapter in chapter 5 of what the fruit of the Spirit was and what it was not. Um, Paul is addressing these people as his family members because he is trying to get across that they are not like the Judaizers who have come in and trying to, he's trying to get across that, hey, these people want you to act as rivals. They want you to act as if you have to put on a show to show who is more holier than the other and the outward appearance. He's trying to tell them, you are members of the household of God and you are to live in a community of a family where everyone is considered, cared for, thought of, and picked up when they stumble. The body is now and will face spiritual warfare. And Paul here is saying, stand firm. Like in a military sense is, take care of the man next to you. Pick him up. No one left behind. He gave them an example of supporting each other by seeking those who have sinned and bringing them back into the fellowship of the body. Paul's referring here to a believer noticing that someone has fallen into sin and because either they're, they're new to the faith or another reason, they may not realize they're being led astray by someone or something that has come into the body to affect them. Paul is saying, you who are spiritual need to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Because for the grace of God, the one that's noticed it could actually be in that situation. Paul is introducing here the idea of spiritual people in this argument. And his whole intention is to point out that all Christians... People led by the Spirit need to live by the Spirit and are spiritual people. And he just said earlier in the letter what we call 516. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I love 525 that Al went over with us. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Meaning that Jesus has sent you the Spirit, so be guided by that. And what that means is slowing down. Picking that time where you just slow down, spend time in the Word and with prayer, and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you in, in your day, to make us aware of what's happening around us. And so many times we realize, maybe at the end it's too late, that we were in a position to share Christ with somebody. And we sit there and knock our foreheads like, 
I wasn't ready. I didn't realize what I was in. I was too flustered about the situation I was in to realize the Spirit led me into that situation. So it's keeping and being guided by the Spirit. So what could be a dead battery for you, what could lead you to jump someone's car battery, is actually time that you're put there to actually speak the truth to them. I shared before how I did that with the U-Haul trailer. I was so frustrated with the low tire, it took another brother to sit there and say, why don't we just relax and get to know each other? It, it was so humbling, and it was so rewarding to actually get that into my mind then. Because I know I don't have here lately a serious track record of doing that. It's, it's like for some reason I don't wake up with my alarm clock, so I feel rushed, and I sit there and make lies to myself like, I'll do it on the car right in, and then someone cuts me off and ruins my whole morning. Or I'll sit there and say, well, I'll do it at lunch, and that never happens. I have somebody in my doorway wanting to talk. So it's, I really, really love the mornings where I'll wake up in time and just close the door in the morning and have that time in the Word, in prayer. And I don't know why I don't, because I always find I'm always ready for my day so much better when I do that. And then when someone walks in with a life-shattering event in their life, they want to talk to me about it, I'm just so much better for them at that moment. So we want to be able, when we see this in someone's life, is to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Um, now, some sins and some sinners, I, I just want to put that caveat, that they need to be removed because they do not listen or obey in stopping that son. But we have the new believers or people that just may not realize that they're actually in a sin and need guidance and, and they feel ashamed and they love the fact that the body has loved them back in, forgiven them and restored them. Now at the end of verse 1, Paul gives us a warning to those performing the restoration, telling them to keep watch on themselves, lest they be tempted too. And then what could those temptations be? I got three things. Three things. One, maybe anger at the sinner, especially if, if they've seen them do this before. That's wrong. Number two could be self-righteousness as being the one leading them to restoration, like, look at me, I'm holier than thou, because I'm bringing him in. Or third, falling into the same sin that they are. Falling into the same sin they are. Now, as we get further into chapter 6, I think what we're going to see is more the issue Paul is addressing is number two. It's, it's the self-righteousness as being the one that's leading them back to restoration. Number verse 2, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, walking with the sinner through the process of restoration, hearing, seeing their weakness, and being that encouragement and doing it with empathy and with the strength of the Holy Spirit is the definition of that word, bear. 
it's not easy and it can leave you asking some days, you know, since I'm doing all this, what about my life? What about, what about my needs? But it is ultimately about Jesus and fulfilling his commands. The law of Christ, don't let that word pass you. Don't let that word pass you. What is it? Paul, being so sharp in his comments and his writing here, is giving instruction to the Galatian church that this is the law you're under. Remember he said previously, if you go ahead and get circumcised, you now have to keep the whole law of the old covenant. He's saying here, law of Christ, making it very clear that this is the law these Gentile believers are under. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, Paul shares that he is not under the Old Testament law, although he is willing to act like it to win sinners to Christ. And he ends verse 21 stating that he is actually under Christ's law. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now we're going to see verses 3, 4, and 5 are very close in their admonishments. Verse 3 is pointing out to us that any sense of pride should be based on critical self-reflection and not a comparison against others. This is because on that day of judgment, the day of judgment, every believer will answer for themselves. There'll be no pointing in heaven. Like you think, I'm bad. Look at that guy. I got dirt on him. And, and the reason I know this is because in 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13, 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as through a fire. You don't want to be that saint that's smoldering at the table. You don't want to be that person. So, and this verse shows us that we're not going to be able to hide behind a person you feel was a bigger sinner than you are on that day, because if you're right, all their work's being burned up, and there you are behind it, exposed. You will be seen. Sorry, i got to work on my delivery. That was supposed to be funny. The, the big thing here to remember is the Spirit has you restoring a sinner. You are not, not to think too highly of yourself, but instead offer that praise to Jesus. Give the credit where it was due. And also, in, humble, in humbleness, thank God that he put you in that position because there's great rewards for you if you're able to bring a sinner back to Jesus. And, and so you won't have everything burned up on that foundation. Verse 4, But let each one 
test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. Verse 4 builds on the the thought in verse 3 and then adds to it, where verse 3 is stating, do not think too highly of yourself. Verse 4 is adding that you must test your own work. Now, I'm not saying get a flamethrower. Don't do that. But we have some pointers on how you can test your own work. I like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He is continuing to work in their church and move them to deeper faith. And why is he doing this? Because he says, they are my workmanship in Christ. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to be strong in their faith to the glory of God because Paul was sent to lead them to Jesus and set up the church. That's his work there. So Paul's purpose is to discourage our desire to self-congratulate ourselves by making comparisons to other and stay on the path of the work. Because why? We see this in a parable Jesus gave, right? We think of what the Pharisee did in Luke 18, 9 through 14. What happened was, if you remember, he incorrectly thanked God he was not like the repentant tax collector just down the way. And from what we read about Pharisees, I have no doubt he loudly proclaimed this prayer for everyone to see here because he was bragging about himself and pointing out that the repentant tax collector who couldn't even raise his head but was asking for mercy, he was, he was saying, I am not like him. But who, though Jesus say, walked away justified? It was the tax collector. So we are to look at ourselves honestly in the light of God's word and his requirements and then judge our actions and realize what has our attention. Is it Jesus or is it the world? And we need to work on diminishing all the ways the world has our attention. Verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. Now finishing up on the thoughts of verses 3 through 5, bear his own load refers to the day of judgment and how we have to answer to Jesus on how we conducted ourselves on earth. So we bear one another's burdens on earth. We listen to the thoughts, concerns of others and continually point them to Jesus and the word. We pour into them so when that time comes, they will be able to stand and bear their own load on the ultimate day. And who knows, at some point, they might replicate everything you have done with them to another. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This verse could be from Paul after stating in verse 5, to bear your own load to him not wanting a believer to become self-reliant and therefore holding back, giving support to those who teach. Or it could be stating that the believer needs to share in the work of their life with the spiritual leaders of the church, letting them know 
what they're getting from the Word and how it's interacting into their life. And I personally think it means both. Paul was not shy with stating teachers should be paid. He states it in Philippians 4.15 and also in Philemon 1.19. He reminds Philemon, hey, I want you to spare Onesimus and anything he owes you, put it onto my account, realizing you owe me your very self. Now let's jump into the next section, verses 7 through 10. New life, the urgency in living in the Spirit. 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. The opening comment, Do not be deceived, does not mean that he, Paul thinks the Galatians are in danger of mocking God, but that Paul is using this as a wake-up call for them, something to capture their attention when they heard it read. Paul could have also said, make no mistake, people, God is not mocked. The verb used here for mocked in the Greek can also give us a word picture, be defined as, as one turning up their nose. And we see a similarity in Luke 23, 35. We see it in Luke 23, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed or mocked or turned up their nose at him, saying, He saved others, meaning Jesus. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And we also see it in the New Testament in 2 Chronicles 36.16. 2 Chronicles 36.16. It says, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So Paul is concerned that believers may mock God by not taking his word seriously. It's like we talk about. You hear about on Sunday, and then like a boss I had, he would throw the Bible back in the trunk till next Sunday. Um, not taking his word seriously. Negotiating away the commands of God. It's like, this is what God says. I don't think it really means that way when it in fact does. We can't negotiate away his commands um, on how to live and interact in Christ because it may be too hard for us or it doesn't meet our needs. That's not the way it works. There may be, there may be things that in the past, in the, these, back, these past ages, centuries, that, that were distractions, but I believe actually living back then was harder in the fact that if you tried to live out according to the Bible, it, it may become brutal for you. Listening to the stories of the, the life of the Puritans from the Puritans conference that happened in uh, this past October, there was almost 300 Puritans burned at the stake within five years of, of Bloody Mary. 
all because of the belief, all because of the belief, the same belief that we have in Jesus that they have today. One moment, another technical problem. I need my glasses for this one. I stop touching things when I'm socket talking. All right, so Paul will use a word picture here in terms that the people would understand back in that time, primarily an agricultural culture, an agricultural culture. I shouldn't have said that. It was it was very predominant that day. They would know exactly what this meant. So the people then, and for most all the following generations would easily understand sowing and reaping. I mean, I was looking back at thinking about my own family, and I think I'm the first generation since we got to America that didn't grow up on a farm. So agriculture was really predominant back then. And this, this understanding sowing and reaping, its intent is to show us cause and consequence. Cause and consequence. Eight says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now Paul's going to fill in the terms for this proverb of sowing and reaping. And notice how he did this. He used the same sequence, the same sentence, and just swapped out flesh, and spirit. Paul's referring to the spirit that gives us salvation. And he states it earlier in Galatians 3.3. He says, Are you so foolish that having begun by the spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? He also states about the power of the spirit in 5.16. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Bam. Major, major words, major power in just one sentence. And the standard by which we are to live out for Jesus says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we are singing the Galatians, in the book of Galatians, the battle between the Spirit and the flesh. And while the Spirit has taken control of believers, Galatians 5.18, thus providing belief and obedience. Believers are still affected by the flesh. And in this case, the Galatians can walk in the Spirit and, and strive to walk daily in that Spirit or give in to circumcision and the certainty of 100% failure in that religion. Paul is talking here of believers in talking here of believers in one who sows and one who reaps. Paul is highlighting the importance of the spirit in this verse. He states that the one who sows to the spirit will catch this from the spirit reap eternal life. So faith in Jesus 
working through love and obedience, not selective obedience, is what counts here. And this, and this works perf- perfect leading into verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And this is some of the urgency of going in, because you don't know when the day is that you're going to be called up. You don't. And Paul is wrapping up his last exhortation of this letter, making the general call for believers to do good, and not just to do good, but do not grow weary in doing good. And at the end of this verse, Paul returns to reinforce the same point. Again, he says, if we do not give up. Why is Paul addressing us to not grow weary, not to give up? I want to tell you, because but doing it can make you weary. I remember when we fed the homeless every Friday night. We went for almost three years. At the point, it wound up just being maybe me and one or two other people. It, it just gets weary. It just got weary. Um, so doing good is referring to the work of a believer. And side note, I want to clarify about doing good. Um, you're not required to place yourself in a repetitive, repetitive uh, chance where you're going to be injured, where people are just users. Now, years ago, years ago, thank goodness, uh, we had to instruct people in the church that were acting out of kindness, but putting themselves in jeopardy of being physically hurt to stop. There was a couple that would not listen to the elders, but when there was a chance that the woman was going to be hit or, or beat, she would run to somebody's house or call somebody over, and ladies would go over and try and help. But we had to tell them, look, they're not listening to us. They're not getting the proper help. They're repeating this cycle. Therefore, we are going to let them go. And what the hopes is that they would repent and come back to the body. But so much is the case in America, they just find somewhere else to go and repeat that cycle. So that's why we really like to exercise good godly judgment and prevent ourselves from just being targets to people that do not want to leave their sin. So the reason we never want to grow weary, though, of doing good is that at the exact right moment, we will reap a harvest. Reap is carried over from verses 7 and 8 and refers to eternal judgment, and we want that harvest. Verse 10 has a lot in common with both, with verse 9. Both have a call to do good. 10 says, So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So then Paul is signifying here a final call for us to do good as he closes out chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Paul says we are to be engaged in doing good at any opportunity we have. 
What is the opportunity we have? It's basically this side of heaven is what he's telling us. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that be, will be revealed to us. Romans 13.11 Romans 13.11 says, Besides this, you, will, you know the time that, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So it's coming. 2 Corinthians 6.2 2 Corinthians 6.2 Paul starts this verse by quoting our old friend Isaiah. For he says, In a favorable, favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The call to do good fits with who we are to do good for, and that is everyone. Everyone signifies good is to be done without boundaries. That's what everyone means. Everyone. For unbelievers as well as believers. Now, boundaries can be an issue, right? Most churches have a limit on who can receive help from them, and I could never understand why. That never sat well with me. And when I have asked, I've been told, well, they aren't a member of this church, so they've never donated to our fund to help people in need, but I could never, that never came to grasp with me. A man-made policy that limits faith has no basis in Scripture. And at Soma, we, we don't believe, we've proven we don't believe in setting boundaries in order to limit who we can help. We'll help anybody. Paul adds, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Especially of, to those who are in the household of faith. This is not meant to limit the general obligation to help people who aren't of faith, but it is the most immediate way, oftentimes, that you know of someone who needs help. They're within your Christian family. You find out through community groups, through talking. Hey, they're hurting and struggling. You get an idea when you see them missing or something, and you find out they're having issues and you help. And what is cool is don't mistake what Paul called them. Paul called the believers a household of faith. This has Old Testament roots, but it really brings the fact that we are, as believers, an extended spiritual family. Paul might have done this to mark out the church as the new covenant counterpart to Israel since he was battling these Judaizers. And there's no accident that Paul uses the word faith to characterize this new spiritual family. He has argued all throughout Galatians that faith in Christ is fundamental and the only reason for their salvation. Now, verses 11 through 18 
the cross and the new creation. You know, I got to admit, I often come to the closing of a letter of Paul and I just skim through it, knowing he's going to be sharing like hellos and goodbyes from saints that are with him, or he is asking for a cloak or scriptures to be brought to him, or his sincere hopes that he will be visiting that church soon. It's a mistake. I know. I've repented. And in Galatian, Paul takes this message, though, right up to the very end. In fact, most of your Bibles that have headers will title this section Final Warning and Benediction instead of Final Greeting. Paul has used the end of this letter to include a final rebuke of the Judaizers and provide us with significant theological comment on this situation. He started off the book jumping right in on the problem, and he ends the same way. This is unique. And we know this because in, in 1.4, he says, rescued from the present evil age, and it matches with 6.14 that says, he was separated from the world by means of his crucifixion with Christ. He shows rescue from the evil age, separated by the world by a crucifixion. So verse 11, let's dive in. See with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. I don't know why Paul wrote this part of the letter in large letters. There's plenty of de debate, naturally, of things that don't matter, like did Paul write the entire letter himself? Or did he use a secretary and do his normal where he picks it up and signs just at the very end? I don't know. Like I said, a lot of people spend years of their life debating that, but they were never there. It's just subjective. The large letters Paul is using me here can mean when he did write it, he was still having a problem with his eyes, like we had mentioned earlier. And so he was trying to be able to see what he was writing. Or, in a modern day time, we can see that maybe he was doing it for emphasis. Like when you open up an email and someone used all caps. You know they're emphasizing something to you. So we don't know what Paul was, what he was doing, but we know he was serious about this final end of the letter. 12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul, instead of talking to the brothers and sisters here of Galatians, goes after these Judaizers, and he's focusing on two points. Two points. Number one, Paul describes their agenda. This is their agenda, and I love this. He explains their personal failings in that they are trying to force you to be circumcised in verse 12. And in verse 13, they want you to be circumcised, but they themselves aren't keeping the law. It's like, why would you do that? If they're not doing it, why would you fall for something they want you to do? 
And then Paul looks at their motives, right? He, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. And they want to avoid being persecuted because of the cross of Christ in verse 12. And they want to boast in your flesh or boast that the fact that they've got their numbers, they've met their quota. We see that in verse 13. So Paul is revealing the Judaizers' main concern, and that is only in the things of the flesh. They are trying to make a good showing in the flesh, and they are boasting in the work that they are doing with the Galatians. Paul, as he does often, is being sarcastic here. That's why I love Paul. Here he is stating that the Jews are bragging in a manner of the flesh, and while they do not understand that they are demonstrating to everyone that they themselves are slaves to it. They are addicted to the outward appearance. And we know that, right? From Jesus' own talkings. The, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, were addicted to the outside appearance while inside they are rotting. What did Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs, which had a good appearance on the outside, but somebody was rotting inside that tomb. The purpose is to make a good temporary outward appearance, but then why? Because you're just going to spend forever in turmoil. In Galatians 2, 3, and 4, Paul refers to the false Christians at the Jerusalem conference when they wanted to compel Timothy, Titus, I mean, compel Titus, a Gentile believer, to be circumcised. Understand this. Believers who were from a Jewish background were wanting to circumcise a Gentile believer. Paul was adamant. This was not happening. It was too important of a theological statement for Paul to let it happen. He stood firm. Now, being persecuted for the cross of Christ would take place because of the true word of God that stated the cross was the basis of acceptance with God. And this was driving zealot Jews crazy. And there was major persecution taking, play for it, taking place for it. They could not believe the cross was the only way. They had hundreds and thousands of laws and duties to do that they wanted to add right along with it. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul continues and elaborates further on these false motives of the Judaizers. Paul is pointing out that the people wanting the church circumcised do not follow the law themselves. Whether it's the fact that they don't follow the law because they live so far away and can't perform the temple sacrificial laws, or most likely it means everyone's inability to keep the law. Remember, Paul pointed out in 5.3 that to become circumcised 
puts you in the fact that you now have to keep the whole law. So Paul is telling the people that what these folks are failing to tell you is that they are also failing to live the law, live up to it. So the last part of verse 13, Paul returns to where he began in verse 12 with the focus on the motivation of the Judaizers in terms of the flesh. The Jews want to circumcise you in order to boast in your flesh. They wanted to boast in the power of their own personal persuasiveness. They want to display their pride in the physical flesh and therefore stay in the power of the old age. 14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In sheer contrast to the object of the Jews' boasting, Paul is boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts off in order to distance himself from the Judaizers. He states, far be it from me. The idea of boasting in the cross of Christ does not mean too much to the readers. In our modern statement, we hear it, we understand it. But in Paul's time, it would have been very, very strange. Crucifixion, you see, was a very horrible and violent and shameful death for someone to be hung on the tree. It was something people out in society would not have discussed. So in Paul's day, taking pride in the cross of Jesus Christ and all that benefit us by God reconciling the world to himself, it caused strange reaction from unbelievers. In the second part of the verse, Paul states that the world has been crucified to him and him to the world. Paul is stating that because of the cross there is separation between the world and himself. And the benefit is that he now stands in a wholly new relationship in Christ. Paul's boasting is not based on what happened to him, but what happened to him through Jesus Christ. Verse 15 explains verse 14 by reshaping it. For it says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what we have here is Paul's dismissing both, circumcision and uncircumcision. And it contrasts with ensuring we know what is the real value, what is the great value. Paul wants us to ensure we know that nothing of the flesh is importance in our new age. And we see it referenced in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the oldest past. Behold, the new has come. This is the new state of affairs that the cross signifies 
and brought about. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Many of Paul's letters end with a promise using the word peace in some form. We see that in Romans, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and both of the letters to the Thessalonians. Galatians has the extinction, distinction again of having Paul use both peace and mercy. No other letter from Paul with a concluding promise mentions mercy, and that is only for those who walk by this rule. So Paul is exhorting the Galatians to join the unbound group who will experience God's peace and mercy. This group is made up of those who follow the rule. The Israel of God, this is cool and unique again, it refers to the children of the promise, not of the heritage of Abraham, but the promise to Abraham. And we know this because it's mentioned here and Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. And it tells us in Romans 9, 6 through 8, Romans 9, 6 through 8, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not who all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. We are the children of this promise that was made to Abraham. So all who follow this rule in verse 16 are the Israel of God, and peace and mercy are upon them. How awesome. 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So Paul gave us a positive presentation of the salvation in, of our situation in Christ. He will now return to those with the false message. He makes it clear that the Galatian church situation has taken a toll on him. Paul is getting a message across to the Judaizers to not cause him trouble. Since the trouble is preaching a false message, and he can probably not stop them from continuing the pros message, I think he wants the Galatians to stop listening to the Judaizers. And Paul is stating here that he bears the marks of Jesus on his body. This meaning, we rightly assume, he has the marks on his body that he received by teaching Jesus Christ alone as the standard of salvation. Some have mentioned it, it could be a tattoo or some other mark a slave would put on his body like a brand to show who he belonged to. But the word here definitely means a physical mark. And even after we read just a short narrative 
of Paul went through in his life, giving up being a Pharisee and being a Christian that took Christ's word out to the world, I think we understand exactly what these marks mean. 2 Corinthians 11, 23-25 Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Am I talking like a madman? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods, and it goes on. Paul was an example. If you want to affect your flesh to identify yourself with Jesus, he was saying, join me on a missions trip, and you might get your own mark of Jesus. In fact, it was probably a strong chance that was happening. 18 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. Amen. Paul concludes the letter with a grace wish. And we are so accustomed to seeing it in all of Paul's endings. By doing this, he ends telling us that his wish is that God's grace to be with you in your spirit. The reference to brothers here or brothers and sisters is found nowhere else in the ending of a grace wish. So we see him emphasizing this one more time that the Gentile believers, along with the people like Paul that are Jewish believers, all belong to the same spiritual family forever. That last word, amen, can simply mean that Paul is ensuring that they know they have not been reading a letter from Paul, but fundamentally from God's word, which it became. So I hope you learned from this book that we need to understand a proper view on God, and it's vital today, just as it was in Paul's time. The world will try and take you out, try and let you know you're okay, you're not going to fully fulfill God's law anyway, or Jesus' commandments anyway, just live how you need to, that's not right. You are building up either fine jewels on your foundation or wood, hay, and stubble. What's it going to be? And we may think, you know, it's getting worse for believers today in the U.S., but it has been bad for believers at various stages in various countries since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you for this book. We thank you for your, your leading Paul to do everything you commanded of him. And he willfully left. He left a comfortable, cushiony life where he could have been a solid Jewish leader and instead went out into the world and suffered to take your message of love to the world. We can never thank you enough for this. And we just thank you so much now that we're going to enter in a season of Advent and learn more about your coming and then delve into a new chapter and a new book in January. We thank you so much for this. Amen.